my real exchange was 0. 0.6 and I we missed the we missed the world record by 0. 0.2 or 3 so 0.6 Daniel yeah. what are you doing Boys, we, were, Good swim. We, were, we were so far in front I didn't want to like F up and did you guys you know, exchange suits <laughs> but um Thorpe had this Thorpe had the when he came into touch, he had like a long glide. Like he, you know, he's using that extension of those massive arms. So I cannot blame this on the swimmer coming <laughs> in. I am. So yeah, it was almost a flat, well, it was a flat start, really. Welcome to Social Kick. I'm Brian Lundquist. We got a treat today. Luke Paddington and joining us from down under, an Aussie legend, a swimmer of many laps. <laughs> Daniel Kowalski, what's going on, Daniel? How are you? Good night, fellas. I'm doing well. It's great to be here. I told you we can't relate because Luke and I are both pure sprinters. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, the Aussie connection I have through my college coach, Brett Hawk, and pro coach Brett Hawk was a swimmer of one lappers. So we've got a lot to learn from somebody like you who spent so much time staring at the black line. I don't know how you did it, but we're really excited um, I have to ask you, what do you remember about your last race as an elite athlete? Yeah, it was uh, trials for Commonwealth Games and Pampax in 2002. Um, I swam, I think, at 1529 and came third in, in the 1500. And I knew as soon as I touched the wall that that was probably going to be it. Um, you know, I didn't make the Commonwealth Games team. I got nominated to the Pampac team and eventually selected and I, and I pulled out and decided that, you know, I was never going to get anywhere close to what I used to be able to hit. And so it was a perfect time for, for me to stop. And it was a horrible 30 laps. It was real bad. Yeah, I was going to ask, you must have known what you're going like halfway through. You must have felt what it was like. And when you touch the wall, maybe not a surprise and like, Describe those feelings to touch the wall after such a story career. Well, I was pretty desperate. I even wore a bodysuit um, mm -hmm. because I wanted to have as much possible advantage as possible. Listen, my lead up had been really disrupted. I'd had two shoulder reconstructions post Sydney. Um, I was essentially getting a cortisone every six weeks. Um, and after the cortisone, I would kick for pretty much two, three weeks and then build up one arm and then build up to, to swimming again. So I knew it was going to be hit and miss, but I, you know, I'd done a lot of work obviously in the past. And so I had that foundation. Um, but, but in the end it was just strength. I just had no strength and, you know, I dived in, Grant Hackett took off, Craig Stevens was well and truly in front of me after halfway. And I was just, like, I want this thing to head. It was hot and humid in the Brisbane pool. And yeah, I was just, as soon as I got to the end, I was like, nah, I don't think I want to do this anymore. At one point you held a world that? record. Yeah, talk about that. That's interesting. Yeah. No, was what was that, sorry? Talk about, about you realize you don't, you don't want to do this anymore. You were, <laughs> you know, 2002, how old were you? Uh, 13. 27. 27. Oh, you know, no. <laughs> yeah. No, I am... Um, you know, a lot of my work was rehab. Um, I was forever like doing various exercises to strengthen the, the shoulders. I was forever in ice baths, forever in ice packs. I was always on a bike. Um, I was doing very little swimming. I was doing majority kick with a snorkel on. And so 
it just wasn't fun. It wasn't what I remembered. And I actually loved training more than I loved racing. And so the fact that training was starting to become tiresome, um, repetitive, boring, it was a real sign to me that, hey, this is probably time to, to call it quits. And like I said, I mean, Grant, Ta- Grant Hackett was, was about to go on an absolute tear. Um, Ian Thorpe was starting to dabble in longer distances. Um, and I just really was, I mean, I couldn't beat them at my best, so I wasn't going to be able to do it with basically one arm. Was that at a time when you were, you know, in your mid to late 20s? Now, I mean, that's still pretty late for swimming. I think my career ended around that same age uh, with much less success. But I think that it's it's interesting to see now how people around that age range aren't necessarily thinking about walking away if they're still having success. Um, you know, and did that impact your decision at all? Did you have this besides the enjoyment from the sport was, were there other things in life that were tugging at you that were kind of part of the reason why that enjoyment wasn't there or was it purely just about sport for you? I was very conscious of the fact that I needed to finish school. Um, you know, it's been nearly nine years since I'd started university and I was, I was still going. Um, and I, I guess it was a little bit different in the sense of um, there were less commercial opportunities from swimming per se. There were there a number of those outside of the pool that um, because I was a part of a very fortunate era that you could make quite a, a decent living but at the end of the day I needed a job right and I needed experience and as long as I was swimming and having to do the rehab and having to do all those other things outside of the pool just to be able to get in the pool I kind of knew that I had to weigh up the pros and cons of both and the reality was being closer to 30 and not having had uh, a proper job at that point in time it was probably time that I started focusing on that a little bit more and the reality was was with all that extra stuff outside of actually swimming in the pool, I wasn't going to be able to do both. Um, But more than anything, it was the fact that I couldn't lift my arms in the morning. I couldn't brush my teeth. I had this, you know, numb sensation in the back of my neck. Um, There were so many factors physically and then starting to weigh me mentally that I was just like relieved, actually relieved when I made the call to say, hey, this is, this is it. Daniel, let's, Talk about that transition then. Let's talk about that transition to 2002 to now. What have you been up to and how how you transitioned to not just being a swimmer to being Daniel Kowalski? What have you been doing since and maybe what are you doing right now? Yeah, so I, I feel very fortunate um, when it came to, to transition. Like I said, I had uh, probably uh, eight subjects left to go on, on my degree. And then so I just knuckled down on that. I'd had no work experience. And so I, I did an internship at one of our professional football teams. Um, and then by the time I graduated, um, I went into full-time um, athlete management. So I worked for a company that managed the likes of Ian Thorpe, uh, Libby Trickett, Liesl Jones, for example, from a swimming point of view, um, and learned very early on that that wasn't for me. Um, I, didn't, I didn't really want to be um, uh, that type of person in that type of role. Um, you know, the, the, the well-being of the athlete and the person was was very was very important to me, something I was passionate about. I went on to work at the organizing committee for the 2007 World Swimming Championships. When that concluded, I tried my hand at coaching and I ended up at the University of Wisconsin for two years. Wow. Absolutely hated that. 
I say that with all due respect, but one, coaching was not for me. Um, it is such an incredible skill um, and I did not have that skill. I enjoyed the interaction and the banter with, with the athletes and just talking to them outside the pool, but I just wasn't, I wasn't built to be a coach and I have so much respect for what coaches to be able to, are able to do. Um, I came back to Australia and ended up um, heading up the, I guess, the union for Australian swimmers um, for about eight, nine years which was a really interesting exercise in the sense that the sport had quite a bit of turmoil in the time that I was there. Um, and so having to work through that, um, working um, for the, the swimmers, uh, but at a time when the sport was really struggling was was a, a massive learning experience for me on so many different levels. And, and that parlayed into the role I have now, which is head of Olympian services at the Australian Olympic Committee. Um, so I'm primarily responsible for, you know, the alumni, the well-being transition, um, and then at games time, uh, head up a team within the village, and we we try to ensure that we deliver the athletes and team members the best possible experience at the games. And so it's it's incredible um, to be able to be in this role and to work across so many sports across summer and winter games. Um, I, I feel re really lucky. So you. I read an article saying you help athletes make a difficult transition to everyday life after retirement as well. Talk about that as well. Talk about do you focus on their financial well-being, their mental well-being? Talk about what you might do. So the sports system in Australia, if you are, you know, at the elite level or aspiring on, on the pathway, there's incredible resources and services uh, available to you. For example, you know, a lot of the top Olympic sports, they have a dedicated well-being and engagement manager, which works one-on-one -on -one with their elite athletes to to do exactly that, help them in their careers outside of their day-to-day -day training environment. So from an Olympic, Olympic committee point of view, we provide a number of programs, services and opportunities to assist those athletes whilst they're still being an athlete. So it basically they get the opportunity to work one-on-one -on -one with a career coach to sort of map out what it is that they are looking for. So if it is for career advice or re regarding education, if it's about transitioning out and getting help with employment and, and how to position yourself to be able to get that particular job, because as you, you both know that particularly when it comes to a sport like swimming and some other Olympic sports where there's you know training required in some cases three times a day you don't get that real life experience to be able to put on your resume but you bring so many other skills and attributes to an organization so getting athletes to be able to be in a position to clearly articulate that and and talk about it as passionately as they can about their career you know as you talk about your best time you should be able to talk about your best attributes in the same way so we're trying to upskill genuinely in a, in a passionate way for these athletes to be able to move on with their life um, in some cases, do it in a dual career perspective, give them that outlook, um, that ability to look just beyond the black line when it comes to the case of swimming, to be as best prepared to, to have as a successful career away from their sport as one they had in it. Beyond a black line is a really good Instagram tag for a good friend of ours who's like this, this amazing marathon swimmer, Kat Breed. Anyway, um, so what did you pull from your experiences? that helps you do what you do now? Oh man. Um, yeah, I, listen, I, I'm pretty I'm pretty open when I talk about, I have a lot of regrets um, with with my career. Um, I feel part of, 
part of that was really struggling with with my identity and who I am, and I feel like that really had a big big impact between my ears when I stood up on the blocks, particularly um, I guess in the latter half of of my career. So my my key learnings and takeaway is the importance of just being able to be your genuine true self every single day. Um, and if I could have my time again, I, I wish I could have been able to do that earlier. And I've been able to to bring that into so many different facets of my life today. And for me, that's that's really really important because it's for some people, um, whatever their personal problem or what they're really struggling with is it, it can get to a point as we sadly see on so many different occasions too much for some people so i wish i had been able to deal with that a lot earlier in any way daniel do you feel like envious of the era that we're in right now because it seems to me like we're in the the prime period for mental health appreciation, patience, awareness. And that's not to say that there isn't a lot of public scrutiny around athletes who say enough is enough and aren't able to handle the stage of the competition because of what's going on behind the scenes, whether that be, you know, some some prominent recent examples in Simone Biles or Caleb Dressel stepping away from the sport um, and, and many others. There, I, I wonder what it's like for you to witness uh, that type of thing when you having reflected on your career so many years post that you have these wishes that things were different for you at the time. Um, do you think that like there was an, something about the era that um, was influential to you and in the, the way that you carried about your business and your life when you swam? Uh I think it's important to point out that I had resources and, um, you know, support available. I just wasn't strong enough to accept that I needed that support. For me, that was a sign of weakness and vulnerability, which is so stupid. Um, but that was there and I chose not to accept it. Um, am I envious of today? Absolutely not. I would hate to live in an era where you can be so easily scrutinised where for your basically for your own commercial well-being and support you need to have social media um, because as much as we like to think that um, there's a lot of commercial and um, prize money available it, it's not enough to you know to to make ends meet in a lot of people's cases so they need social media they need the followers to be able to justify to a brand or a company that hey i can get this much exposure for your your brand but with that comes the negative and dealing with that every single day when particularly in my case when i was very vulnerable and when i was very anxious and I didn't have that self-belief, there's no way in the world I could cope with that. And so for, for the young people today who, who need that, hats off to them who are strong enough to, to deal with that. And whilst it's great that people are talking about it and people are being more open and honest, um, it, it just, it's a minefield out there um, and it must be really difficult to navigate. Coming from, a, company like, coming from a, a country like Australia where uh, from the outside, we always hear about how popular swimming is there and how um, aware the Australian public is about their swimming stars. And I was at a World Cup meet recently and um, had was 
able to meet uh, Kyle Chalmers and have some good chats with him. And it, it seemed that was my first time meeting him in person. It seemed like he was, uh, you know, in a, in a really good space. Uh, but having gone through some rough periods with with the media and just the attention and, and what can come with all of that, I, what is it like to be a prominent Olympic medal winning swimmer in Australia? What is that attention like? Um, and how does it affect, you know, you on a daily basis? It's funny. I feel like I, as I mentioned before, I, I was very fortunate to be part of, of an era that was true, truly special. Um, and, you know, when you had, you know, particularly Sydney 2000 with the team, um, you know, sort of led by Kieran and Susie O'Neill, um, based off, you know, their, their experience and longevity, but, you know, Ian Thorpe and, and Grant Hackett were coming in, coming through. Michael Klim was, was an absolute star. Um, it was so cool just to sort of sit back and, and watch this sort of play out because, um, you know, the, the, there were so many fans, there was a lot of interest from the media, um, you know, there was even elements of paparazzi around and being on a periphery for that was was, was quite bizarre. Um, <laughs> but the beauty was there was no social media, there was, you know, four major television networks, there wasn't um, the abundance of platforms and, and opportunities that are out there today. So it was, it was quite... Um, it was quite insular in, in, in some regards, as opposed to today, whilst we have tremendous success. And um, I think the swimming team in particular last year in, in Tokyo did a did a phenomenal job, um, which if they had got those results maybe 15, 20 years ago, it, it really would have been huge news. Not that it wasn't, but it was a 24-hour news cycle. And next thing, you know, someone put something on Twitter or someone's posted something on TikTok and it goes viral or someone's doing something on a, on a podcast, whatever it may be. Things move so quickly. There's so many more opportunities out there. There's so many more um, sports for young people to take part in. It, it's a really, it's a cluttered market. So I think today, whilst the, the athletes' performances are, are incredible, they're inspiring, um, you know, both for, for us as retired athletes but also for young kids in this country and and those who love their sport it, it just it's it's trying to cut through all that and so they are, you know i'm biased i don't think they get the accolades that, that that they deserve but it's you know i feel very fortunate that i was able to be a part of this incredible incredible era and the, this current crew are, are, are no different they just they're just trying to battle, fight their way through all the all the traffic I do want to ask you about the areas of swimming, but I want to get to that a little deeper. Um, you know, Gary Hall was, he told us he was misrepresented in his comment about smashing him like guitars. Because if, if, if you had actually read the whole paragraph, you would see the context of it. But it's an example of how the media can take what it needs to, to, to serve an agenda and how that went, went off. And social media, that's times a million right now. Absolutely. And we see it. But at the same time, you know, uh, it's almost a representation matters idea. I mean, on our show alone, we've had people open up to about when they commit, when they want to commit suicide, mental health depression. We had the first openly gay athlete who qualified for a U.S. Olympic team while she and she was out and she talked about that. We had people talk about Black Power movement, and I was wondering if having these openly conversations would have maybe helped as well. Help it would have helped me 
because I could have read. I wish I had these podcasts when I was swimming in the 90s because I would have got to know and maybe relate to more and giving some more strength, more confidence. And and it's okay, Luke, it's you're not the only one kind of thing. No, a hundred percent. You, you can't be what you can't see, right? So, right. um, for me, I, I agree with that. I would have loved to have some more visibility, um, you know, particularly you know, around the sexuality thing. Um, but but also around this, you know, mental health, mm-hmm. um, you know, how to manage that that anxiety, you know, all these things around the the, the well being of the whole athlete, you know, not just the the physical side of things. Um, you know, plenty of books out there to read, I'm sure. But hearing peer to peer and having those opportunities, it, it's so powerful. Um, and, and and I agree. I, w- I would have loved that. It would have um, would have you know brought this sense of being closer, better, a stronger community as well. Yeah, we also had the Paralympic swimmer on our last show, and that's something. I'm so embarrassed that I'm not aware of what swimming classifications are in, in para swimming. That's an embarrassing thing for me. You know, in Australia, you guys are way ahead of the field where you have para and swimming trials together. Um, I have no idea. We're so young in, in, in dealing with gender classification for our swimming. You know, especially here in the U.S. and where we're going there, so it's it's just a lot of conversation, and that's how we we get closer, right? It's conversation and listening and talking. Um, so yeah, in the nineties, it must have been very difficult. Absolutely, I, I, that's what I found. Yeah, I went to a conference at the end of last year. Um, it was actually a women in sport conference in um, in Auckland, New Zealand, um, and and one of the key takeaways for me of, of from that conference was this focus on youth, and you you can't be me without me um, and they talked about how people are making decisions on young people's lives without consulting the young people um, and for me that really resonated because so many people make decisions that impact the lives of young people but haven't even taken that step to talk to them to see if they're actually on the right path is that policy yeah. going to be reflective and and for me that was that was really important and so in in the programs that we're looking at delivering this year um, that is one of the things that's driving what I want to do is, you know, consulting with the young people or the younger Olympians to ensure that, hey, are we, are we on the right track here? Is, is this what you're actually looking for? We can't assume. So, like, just because I was an elite athlete 25 years ago doesn't mean I know what elite athletes want today. And so that you can't be me without me is something that resonates in my head all the time. I, I appreciate that because, you know, the, the World Aquatics now, formerly FINA, I, I used to I used to criticize just the coaching in America. Sixteen percent of female head coaches in NCAA swimming, but fifteen percent of head coaches in the NCAA Division One are female, right? Of women's teams, that works out to be about twenty kids out of two hundred. And I was like, we need to start representation there, but beyond that, beyond to, to, to the governing committees, to USA Swimming, and then to FINA as well. And and the athletes commission at FINA is a huge, huge step to that direction and importance so that world aquatics can talk to the athletes, can talk to the former athletes and, and, and make that bond. You want to talk about that, how world aquatics is, is continuing to make efforts to move forward? Yeah, I guess I can talk from a personal experience. I was elected onto the FINA Athletes Committee back in 2005 and served one term and was extremely frustrated by that process. Huh. Um, there was no genuine opportunity for us to engage with you know members of the, the FINA staff um, 
let alone having any conversation with anyone on the bureau, um, unless you already had a personal relationship with them, um, or let alone engagement with, with the president. Um, and then I was appointed back onto the FINA Athletes Com of the World Aquatics Athletes Committee um, in Budapest last year. Um, and just in Melbourne recently, you know, with um, my chair, Alia Atkinson, and, yeah. and fellow member Jess Hansen, we got to yeah. sit down with the president, the executive of FINA, uh, Brent Nowicki, and it was incredible. I, I mean, I just could not believe that they actually were wanting to know what the athletes want, what the athletes need. Yeah. Our WhatsApp group is just active every single day. Awesome. Um, you know, there's a lot of passionate people in there, and and they're looking across the board. They're looking. They want us to deliver, you know, opportunities for aquatic athletes that, you know, support them and help them develop personally and professionally. Um, and so for me, that's 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 really encouraging. Um, and and I'm, I'm loving being back involved in, in that aspect of of the sport. It's something that Brian, John, and I are trying to. We love about what we do here. We're trying to show who's behind the goggles and the cap. Uh, it's, it's swimmers are judged by their time. You see Luke Paddington, his time, and you judge him completely based on that. You have no idea who he is, what's he about, where he's going, what's about. So we're trying to bring the face to the goggles, bring the personality and the characters, a to build our sport and grow our sport, but also to to grow it in such a more enlightening way, if that's the right word, you know, just a happier place to be. So I'm really glad to hear that and that change in just a year. So and, and, and I know Aaliyah, she's great. So that's awesome. Dan, I want to ask you a little bit about swimming and um, comparisons with other sports, especially because you're, you know, kind of involved now with influence and in, in other sports. And um, I've always been curious about this as a, as a distance swimmer, um, not uncommon to hear people have shoulder injuries that derail their careers or start to zap the enjoyment from it. I can't imagine having a bunch of shoulder surgeries is fun. Sounds terrible. Uh, <laughs> but like in track, you see as athletes age, they get into the longer events. And in triathlon, as the athletes focus on the Olympic distance and then they get into the longer distance stuff as they age out of having that speed. And in swimming, it works like the other way around. It seems like if, if we ever get people to like to continue late in their career, they're, they're very, they're usually giving up the longest distance and coming down a distance. Why do you think that is? I mean, it's, I, 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 I don't know. Um, I guess I mean, I me guess, neither. That's why I'm asking you. I, I, <laughs> I, I guess it's one of those things. Like we start this sport at a very young age, and you lay that foundation. You have this incredible base. Um, uh, I, I mean, if I had the ability, um, I, I would have loved to have got, come down, but I just I didn't. Um, but physically, it was the, the barrier for me. I, I just. It's, it's a really good point. I think of, you know, those triathletes who go on to do Ironman and, you know, the fact that they had this incredible Olympic distance speed and now all of a sudden they're, they're banging out these Ironman times, which are incredibly quick. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really, really good question. And I'm <laughs> sorry. I don't know. The thing I is, you gonna... did have, you did exactly. have the speed though, because you could, you, you were, you were the first person in 90 something years to win a medal in the 200, the 400 and the 1500 in the same competition. Like that's, that's a lot of range. And the 200 freestyle is, 
an extended sprint. It's not a pure sprint, but it's it's long. I mean, it, it's you have to have speed to be able to do it, especially to medal at a major games. So uh, obviously you had some, but what what happened when you tried to swim a fifty? Uh, like you guys joke about, you know, you know you, I did the thirty laps and we did one, but give me thirty laps any day. I, I mean. If I try to do a 50 sprint, I, I feel uncoordinated. I just have no rhythm. I, I all of a sudden want to breathe every stroke because I'm just so tight and wound up and panicky. Um, it's such a skill to be able to swim that race um, as well as the 100. I have the utmost respect um, and I appreciate what, you know, those sprint swimmers did outside the pool um, which was, you know, just as much work as inside the pool. So for me, um, you know, I, it's swimming a 50 or 100 is very, very daunting. And I won't, will not even try it today because I would. Oof. Okay, but shoulders, let's say you had healthy shoulders. Would you, didn't some part of you just want to go hit the gym and like see how swole you could get and see how fast you could <laughs> go over a, 100 or 200? Um, nah, not really. It's funny, I hardly ever did any stuff in the gym. Um, so that the, the thought of that was like, oh god, do I really have to do I really have to do this? Because in my mind, I was like, that's going to impact my you know, my training session in the pool right. later today, type of thing. And so I didn't right, really have that problem mentality or approach. I know, I just you know, I, I love the, the distance the distance stuff if you know the 800 was probably my favorite um you sort of met halfway right but i had no desire and, and still to this day you know give me a 200 and above um it doesn't have to be fast but i don't want to be doing no lactic acid production these days How do you enjoy a 1200 no <laughs> yeah why don't we do 1150 you know why do we well, it's such a big gap between the 850 <laughs> Did you enjoy training more than racing oh. or are you or equal? You're training? Are you nah. a trainer? Love training. Who did Absolutely. you train with? Ex example, who did you train with? What was it about it? Do you just love like conquering that set, overcoming that obstacle, having Dennis and Bill in your air? Like describe it. Describe what you loved about it. Um, I love the, the, the challenge set on the board. Um, and then, you know, in my mind, I'm like, hey, what can I hit this week? Um, I love being able to see the gains that were being made, um, you know, every time you came around to doing a particular set again. Um, I loved how you could play around technically, you know, you, you could get a greater understanding. Okay, my stroke count is I'm up two strokes per 50. You know, what's going on here? Is it fatigue? Am I tired? Um, you know, so being able to, to do that. But, you know, when before I left Dennis, uh, from the Dennis Cottrell on the Gold Coast and, and moved down to Melbourne, mm. you know, Grant Hackett would get put in a lane with me when he was in trouble, um, which was a lot because he was a little, he was a little smart ass. Um, but uh, when I, when I came back to the Gold Coast um, and this was in the lead up to Sydney, you know, I'd gone from being able to lap him to him being able to lap me, but just, I love the challenge of just trying to see, you know, could I keep up with him for any part of this set of 150s or the longer stuff for 400s? When we did, you know, my most hated set ever was 3050s, dive start on 130. Um, and, you know, he would be, you know, 
24 lows, even getting the 23s a couple of times. And for me, I just loved just seeing what he was capable of doing. That sort of stuff really inspired me. Um, I just, so at the end of the day, it was just, you know, how could I push myself to the point of doing something that I would leave the pool and put my head on the pillow and go, yeah, that was pretty special. Brian, 35th dive starts. It means you touch the wall at number 24 and you got to pull yourself out of the water. You got to get back on that block, find your balance on the blocks. Well, you're on 130. I mean, they're on 130. Yeah, but still, your heart rate's ponging at 24 and you got to yeah. get balance and. I'm not making light of it. It's like I my lactate production was so high that trying to get through eight fifties fast was uh, quite daunting. Um, <laughs> it's interesting though to me that what you talk about is the most hated set for a distance swimmer was fifties, thirty fifties <laughs> all out. That's the one that like oh I just I hated that. I think about like some horrific crazy yardage and it sounds like that is like it's just calmness for you you're like okay that's that's where i'm comfortable give me the distance give me the long yardage stuff what what was it like in in those days with i mean you spanned a few coaches but like when were you training with cottrell and like what, what was your coaching situation who was in your training group throughout your career what were some of the things that you were working on with all within each kind of group yeah with, with dennis um so i i moved from a city called adelaide um at the end of um sort of not finished i had one year of high school and we moved up to the gold coast so i could train with dennis dennis um he was more known as a sprint coach he had he coached the first australian under 50 in andrew Bailden at the commonwealth games in 1990 he went 49 8 um, but I'd worked with Dennis on a training camp and I really loved his passion and his enthusiasm and his willing to, you know, try things. And so I was very much a guinea pig and, you know, we did a lot of, you know, 150s and 400s, but we didn't do a lot of like mileage. It was never really any more than seven, seven and a half K a session. It was all a lot of high intensity, a lot more kick work than I'd ever done before. Um, but like I said before, we do sessions um, that they they would repeat, you know, maybe every three or four weeks. And so it was a really good um, way to see exactly where you were um, when it came to, you know, what sort of gains that you'd possibly made. I love doing things like 10, 400. So for me, that was really, really challenging, just getting in the zone. And then I'm, I stupidly, and I, I say that with all due respect, I, I, I left Dennis and, and moved to, to Melbourne and my coach, Bill Nelson, was probably more focused on, on the yardage. Um, we were to, you know, eight sort of 9K sessions quite regularly. Um, and a lot of the foundations were quite similar. It's just that there was a lot more work, um, you know, 300, 600s, that kind of thing. You know, I even did one session once. It was a 1,500 for time, then a 1,000 for time, then a 500 for time. I did that six weeks out from the Atlanta Olympics. And it was just kind of crazy stuff like that. But we always, all my coaches, there was always that element. Um, Mr. Carew, who was Kieran Perkins' coach, mm -hmm. he had a, a, along with Bob Trafine, who was a, an exercise sports scientist, we do a lot of these heart rate sets, you know, 3100s, yeah. um, or you do a 4321, you know, yeah. three times, that type of stuff. And um, whenever we had distance camps, Mr. Carew we would have the same sessions every time we'd go on a distance camp, we knew exactly what we we're doing. And so both 
Dennis and Bill would incorporate elements of, of that into it as well. So at the Gold Coast, when I went back, you know, as I mentioned before, Grant Hackett um, was in the pool. There was also um, Kieran Rooney was in the pool, Kai Hurst towards the back end of, of my career. Um, we had a lot of people who did triathlons and surf lifesaving, um, which is a, a huge sport down here in, in our squad. We had, um, you know, a couple of guys, Daniel Weishardt ended up going to Cal. Um, Stephen Penfold made a couple of teams swimming 800, 1500. Um, it was a pretty, it was a pretty tidy group. You know, I was very much the elder statesman, so I thrived off their, their enthusiasm, just how young they were um, and their ability to back up. There was always be someone else leading a lane outside Grant and so just trying to jump jump in there and, and do what I can. So it really brought the best out of all of us. It was it was awesome. I do think, so in your era, when you swam the mile, the 1500, the world record dropped 16 seconds. It was like a 450 something and went right down to when you ended at what, 1434 or something. And I remember how you both, you and Kieran Perkins, approached how you raced the 1500. You changed how you raced that 1500. Talk about that. Well, how did you guys go about your racing in 1500? It's different. You know, six-speed kick from the get-go, just get going and go. Talk about the racing of them, of the approach that you had to the 1500. So the approach that I adopted was, I had to adopt that because that's how Kieran swam the race. <laughs> um, you got to remember, like, swimming in Queensland, I couldn't even get on the podium at the state championships. The talent was so crazy. So um, you, you just had to had to adapt. So if you you know Kieran's thing was you, you go out, you break their back in the first hundred, and then you just settle into that routine, and then straight away you've got like three four seconds on them, and that's demoralising. I couldn't quite get out at that speed, and so I had to be able to know that I could be within you know range. And the only time I ever I, I ever beat Kieran when he was when he was not on. Um, and so for me, it was just knowing that I'm going to have to go out in a 57 and then just settle into that route, that rhythm as soon as possible. And a lot of that training was, okay, that's how we're going to train, two, two F at 100 straight up and then followed by four or the six 100s at, at pace, warm down and do that four, time, four times kind of thing. And so we knew that we'd go in, you'd break the backs and then you just got to hold on. Um, and get into into that rhythm, and, and in a lot of cases, it worked. The amount of fifteen hundreds that I did, where it was Kieran, myself, and then quite a bit of space back, was was a lot of times. Um, but the telling thing there was when it wasn't going that way. How do you respond? And I did not respond very well. <laughs> did you know? So Leah Smith was on our show, and Leah Leah Smith said in the eight hundred, if she was. If she was okay at the 400, she knew she could finish. No matter how much pain she was in, she knew she could put in a solid 800. Was there a point in the 1500 where you just like, okay, the wheels are off and I can't bring this back? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> how early was that? Was that like, I, like, did you know you could hold on after the 1000? And then no matter what pain you're in, you could hold on? Or it didn't matter sort of thing. 98 Commonwealth Games. So I'd then I'd gone on to another coach. I'd moved to the AIS. My, Mel, Bill Nelson had quit coaching yeah. and my shoulders were really bad. And so I went to the AIS, which is like, you know, um, uh, it had the, the medical facilities and, and the like there. Um, and my coach at the time at, at these Commonwealth Games, like, listen, you just got to tag it from the start. Um, and at 500, I knew I was, I was done. I was absolutely what, done. 500? Yeah. And um, I ended up getting four. Uh, Rick Neefling ended up passing me like 
with a couple hundred meters to go. And so I, I finished off the podium. Um, there's a guy who hit the gym and then went down in distance. Exactly. Exactly. I, th- I remember <laughs> lapping, lapping him in 90 at 1994 Commonwealth games. And then, so, you know, four years later, he's finishing in front of me. So that, that team, that South African team in Athens was incredible. Yeah, so, I agree. Okay. No, I agree. no, 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 it's just, I agree. But at those 98 games, I mean, uh, Grant won in 1450. Kieran was like 15 or something, you know, way off the world record where they're at. So all of them, it was, they were all changing the guard in that night. Between the 94 Commonwealths, when world records were set two in your race to the 98 Commonwealths, that was a real change in the guard time. And you went through that and you and you came out and you were in Sydney. That was, I mean, that's longevity. That's that's grit. That's 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 stick it to it. That was hardcore for your career. You want to talk about that period of 94 to 98 and going to 2000? Yeah, 94 was, um, you know, I wasn't long with Dennis at that point. Um, and the trials, I broke 15 minutes for the, the first time up in, in Brisbane and and, and beat Kieran, which was in many ways the worst thing I could have done because it really lit a fire in his belly. And then he goes on, and, as he said, he, he he won the two, four, and the 15 in Commonwealth Games, breaking the 800 and 1500 world record in that one swim. Then he goes, yeah, then he goes to Rome a few weeks later at World Championships and goes 343.8 and absolutely made us all look like we were pedestrians. Um, and so for me, I was just like, oh, just forever chasing. But it was very surreal, the fact that I, I just couldn't believe I was at a world championships. Um, mm. And so for me, that was very, very cool. And then going into into Atlanta, um, you know, Kieran and Glenn Houseman had come first and second in Barcelona. Kieran was on an absolute tear. Um, and so there's just this, this massive hype, not just because of 96, but Sydney was only four years away too, right? So that was... A, a, a huge carrot coming back from Atlanta. Um, really disappointed. Really dark times. I felt like I, had, and I'd, I've said this. I said this all the time. I really felt like I failed. Um, and I, I knew. I knew Kieran wanted to win three in a row. I used to train with Grant Hackett. I knew what he was going to be capable capable of. I'd heard of this young kid out of Sydney called Ian Thorpe. Um, I'd seen Michael Klim go and do something really unusual for for back then he just raced Gennady his coach it was like you just got to keep racing 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 and and then you saw what for those swimming historians what he he did at world championships in 1998 in Perth so there's this young blood of talent coming through all because Sydney was there um and you know from the men's freestyle side of side of things it was it was crazy the depth was I think our 200 final at trials you know, I came, I came fifth, and I think our top six times would have been top twenty in the world. Um, so it was, you know, incredible to to be a part of, and I was comfortable with the fact that I was going to be a relay alternate. You know, you were, um, I, I it, it didn't bother me because when I looked at who was swimming the individual, I was like, well, you know, even on my best day, I wasn't going to make it. Um, and so I, I, part of me was was proud of that. It was, you know, I didn't really love the fact that I was a relay alternate, having been I swimming four events in the previous game. But that's where I knew I was at. Um, and so to be a, been a part of that particular thing was great. But there were a lot of dark times in in, in the period between '96 and 2000 with injury, with eating disorders, just with 
dealing what was inside, you know, between my, my ears, um, it was it was a real struggle. And that's why I really made the decision to go home and being in the safety of my mum and dad's on the Gold Coast, um, getting on with, you know, life starting back at university and just trying to trying to normalise things. Um, but I'm really proud to have been part of, of that era and it's um, it's something I look back on with a, a lot of great memories. Daniel, that, that strength you showed to go back and make that change to do some self-care and take care of yourself. So kudos to you, dude. I mean, yeah, others would have continued to, you know, it was working swimming-wise. I mean, working, in our opinion, swimming-wise over the course. But for you, you made a decision to do something to look after yourself. So kudos. And, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you are around for other athletes to hear from you right now who might need this. Yeah, I think... I, this is this is one of the beauties of what you guys do. These platforms um, that you, whilst it's so cool um, as a retired swimmer to, to to listen to to today's athletes and and right. what they're what they're talking about, I, I think of people who who watch this and take something out of it that we may not ever hear or we may not ever pick up on, and, and that gives them something. For me, that is that is so powerful and. I just love that we have these opportunities today. I didn't make a 96 games. I missed it by a 10th. And um, I quit swimming two years later. My brother qualified for 96 games, but he, the country, our country, wants him to qualify twice. They're like, great, can you do it again? And that didn't kill him. That drove him, mm. and he made Sydney. Me, I said, I, I, knew, I couldn't do it. And, you know, it, 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 it's, uh, it's inspiring for us to hear, for me to tell these stories. Hopefully we can help. The next mm. you, me, and stuff moving forward. So, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, totally. What was more nerve wracking, your first Olympic race or swimming in front of that crowd in Sydney? I was in that crowd. So, it's probably Sydney because I was there. I was like, <laughs> get them down. 20,000 people down. You know, it's, um, I remember you actually now that I think yeah, about I it. Like, you, yeah. <laughs> um, I went into that um, heat, I was swimming last. Um, I hadn't had a very good preparation. You know, by then I, I knew I was having um, shoulder reconstructive surgery post-games. I was on the cortisone cycles again. Um, and my parents and my sister and her husband were in like the third row sort of at the start. So they didn't get to go to Atlanta. So being able to swim in front of them was, was pretty special. But... Um, that was kind of a nothing feeling. Um, we were in our heat, we were a fair way in front, and so it was basically like a time trial. And I just, I didn't, I didn't feel it. Um, you, make so sound coach, like a, you make yourself sound like a horse that you need to put out to pasture. <laughs> I, you know, I tell you what, there's days I wake up right now and I wish I had been, but anyway. <laughs> um, but Daniel, there's the largest swimming crowd ever in history, it was 20,000 mm -hmm. people. You have to realize that. I mean, I bought the poster of the 400 free yeah. final. It's it still dominating. You know, I have it right here. It's it. It was a lot of pressure. My brother swam the 200 free. He had been to Perth Worlds. He had been to Gutberg, Fukuoka, all in the 90s. You've been, I'm sure. He's at halfway through his race. He's like, crap, I need to start racing. He was so <laughs> overwhelmed by the audience and the crowd. So, and you, and he was in Australia. And you were there. You're a defending silver medalist. I mean, it's a lot of pressure. Yeah, I think the fact that my family were there and they'd never seen, they didn't see me race last time. I was just so grateful that I could look up and, and, and see them there. 
Um, it's funny that that meet in Perth in '98. That was my favorite yep. ever meet. I absolutely yeah. loved that. Event. It was it was incredible. Yeah. Well, why why was that? Was it just uh, being in Perth, a beautiful location, the people, or just you were on fire there and you felt it was a nice comeback from some tough times after Atlanta? Maybe. Yeah. So we um, we had a great training camp. We all met on like New Year's Day. Um, the weather was stunning. Other than I think the morning of the heat of the four by two, it was that rained a little bit. Everything else was blue sky. The crowd was so into it. It was so loud. Uh, we had, you know, as a Dolphins team, we had a phenomenal performance. Um, you know, four by two, we were under world record pace pretty much the whole way. Um, I dived in my relax day. We were so far in front, and I don't say that like in an arrogant way, but we were. Um, and I died. My relax day was 0. 0.6, and I we missed the we missed the world record by 0. 0.2 or three. So 0.6. Daniel, yeah. what are you doing? Well, we said hi. Good swim. We were, we were so far in front, I didn't want to like F up. And Did you guys exchange suits? <laughs> but um, Thorby had this, Thorby had the, when he came into touch, he had like a long glide. Like he, you know, he's using that extension of those massive arms. So I cannot blame this on the swimmer. <laughs> I am. So yeah, it was almost a flat, well, it was a flat start, really. Um, so that was amazing. That, that the crowd was so loud. Yeah, it was it was very cool. And got a bronze on, in the fifteen hundred on on the final on the final lap. I think I passed the guy from. I think he maybe was Ukrainian on the last last fifty. I felt a little bit bad, but it was cool. Uh, Brian, I want to get into for those who may not know who Donald Kowalski is, uh, your career. And I'm gonna end of a question, but I just want to summarize very quickly from from double world champion in '93. Yes, short course. I don't give a shit. Double world champion in '93, correct? And correct me if you're wrong, okay? In the in the 400 mile, worlds gold in the relay, silver, hand packs gold in the 800, 96, three Olympic gold medals, three, and yeah. silver and two, two bronze. Oh, three, yeah, yeah. yeah. Three, so three Olympic gold medal. I mean, three Olympic medals in '96, 98 worlds, bronze in the mile. Then you cap it off with a. Gold medal. Which of those or whatever was your was your proudest race? The race like I uh, so like you come if I go to your home right now, like look, this is the one that did it. This is this is the one that I feel most I'm proud about. Which one do you show your husband? Which one do you show your mom? Which one do you show your friends? Which one is that like this is it? Uh it'd be the bronze and the ton of free in Atlanta in ninety six. Is it? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, why? I should, I should not have. I should not have won a medal in, in, in that. Um, it was just. It was one of those things where um, it, was, it was a pure. It was a pure racing meet that um, for a lot of the men's events, it wasn't. It wasn't fast. Um, I was in lane seven. I had oh. Peter Van den Hoogen band in lane six. I think Josh Davis was in lane four. Yeah. Ah, yeah, uh, yeah. Daniel Lode was in five. Gustavo was out in lane one, um, and I I remember, I my coach said to me, Bill said to me in the dining hall at lunchtime, he goes, if you're with a guy in lane six with fifty meters to go, you're going to win a medal. And I remember, you know, streamlining coming off that wall. I thought I'll, I'll have a cheeky look, and I looked, and Peter was right there, and I thought, holy shit! And so I literally was, you know. I just went for it. And when I saw that three next to my name, it was the best feeling I ever felt my whole career. It was absolutely 
incredible. We had Gustavo on, and he talks about that's his greatest race as well. So Daniel was on fire that meet, but Gustavo says that was when he came back, he started mowing down Daniel. But yeah, but he said that's one of his proudest meets as well, even though he got silver yeah. as well. So that's interesting. Yeah. Daniel, we got a few rapid fire questions for you to wrap up. What's the hardest race in swimming? 400 IM. I thought you were going to say 50 free. Olympic gold or the world record? Olympic gold. Greatest swimming performance you ever saw live? Uh, Grand Hack at Montreal 2005. Oh, actually, no, I forgot I was in Beijing. Michael Phelps. <laughs> <laughs> which which one, though? All, the whole thing? The whole oh, meet? I, I know this is rapid fire, but I remember vividly I was on pool deck doing com, uh, interviews after the races, mm -hmm. and after that 100 fly, I could see Mike Bottom running around like so I'm like, well, something's going on here, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on, and I'm like s sensing that, you know, they're, they're protesting or they want, you know, to look at the camera and all the rest of it. So that was, yeah. that was pretty cool to be, to be that close. Yeah. Also, that four by one free on the first section of finals was epic. Yeah, that was an epic one to live as a teammate of Fred Bousquet at the time. We also talked to Kavik about that race and uh, and Mike Bottom too. So yeah, what an epic Olympics to see live. Good for you. Um, if you had to swim a hundred meters faster right now, what would you go? Long course. Um, probably, if I had to go really fast, I could go double O. That's pretty good. That's pretty good, Daniel. Jeez. Better bodysuit, Thorpey or Kathy Freeman? <laughs> I'm actually looking at the Kathy Freeman one right now. So I'm going to say Kathy Freeman. Can I do that? <laughs> yeah, show us. Yeah, show us. Show us Kathy Freeman, the legend with the hood. There we go. Oh, no way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Or I guess I could have asked you if it was the one that you wore late in your career. No, that one got bad. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't they all? Uh, do you pee in the pool? If any swimmer says they don't, they're lying. <laughs> yeah, what was the last year that Australia and New Zealand competed together in the Olympics under the name Australasia? 1920? 1912. What's the worst song to have stuck in your head during a hard set? Oh, my goodness. Oh, no, I don't want to say it because then I'll start singing it now. Um, <laughs> oh, that's I, 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 I don't, I, I don't know. A anything? Um, no, I don't know. That's wow. That's a real tough question. Oh, not an answer. Uh, what did some? What did some people said for that? Akintosh so, said nothing slow. It has to be fast. If it's slow, it drives her crazy. Some kids said nursery rhymes. That's the worst. I think somebody yeah. said on um, blue. Uh, ba -dee, uh, ba -da, da -ba -dee, da da da. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know what it would be for me, but yeah, I was I, I was probably gonna say like the Vegemite sandwich thing, whatever that one is. I come from a land down under. That would be Ooh. terrible for a really long set. Oh man. Who's the toughest so trainer you've ever seen? Oh, Grant Hackett. Hmm. Hands down. What would What's he the, say? What if? Yeah, what have you seen? What have you seen Grant do that you were like, oh my god? Yeah. Um, it was it was you know that set of fifties I talked about before. Okay. But, you know, we do one of my favorite sets. Um, where I always or distances I love doing one fifties, 
And it was so easy for him to just be going 123, 121, just push, you know, like he, you know, you'd leave with him and then he just, you could sort of sit with him on his hip for the first 50 and then he'd just go and then he'd just back him up, back him up. And as we went down, you know, 145, 140, 135, whilst he wasn't hitting 121, 123 in those, he was, he was still getting enough rest to have a sip of water and then go again. He was, he was incredible. That's a lot of freestyle. What's the safest <laughs> world record on the books? Uh, Kate, Katie Ledecky, 804. <laughs> yeah, I think that's safe from her now too, but oof. it's hard to argue with that. I was wondering if you were going to say the men's 800, Zhang Lin's 8 or 7, whatever stupid it is. But yeah, 804 is <sighs> disgusting. That she, I just, I don't have enough superlatives to, to describe her. My goodness, no one does. Daniel, it's awesome to talk to you. Thanks, thanks for joining us and giving us the, a lens of of a bit of history. And also, I'm really encouraged that you're a part of the sport and able to impact it in a, a really meaningful way um, and in a very real way. It sounds like with the open ears of the execs at, at World Aquatics. So that's very encouraging for us to hear and uh, all around. It's been a real pleasure. So I appreciate you joining. Appreciate you. Thank you guys and keep up the incredible work. It's it's great to watch. Appreciate you. Will do. Thanks for that. All right, that's that for this episode of Social Kick and we'll see you later. Hey everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us. If you're enjoying Social Kick, tell your friends about it and be sure to tell us what you liked by leaving a comment and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Social Kick, and you can find all of our content on our website.